please uh, pray with me as we open up God's word this morning. God, we sing that song. We pray that you would reveal new depths of how great you are to our hearts. God, we cannot fathom the beauty and the splendor and the glory and the greatness and the goodness of who you are. But your word reveals new truths to us daily. I pray you enlighten our hearts to know your word, be taught by your word, be heralds of your word, be hearers of your word. And God, that your word would transform us for your glory. So we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, continue on our, in our series, our journey through the book of Genesis. Uh, I'm going to be covering kind of 41 through 45 this morning, uh, through the last, uh, some of the last chapters of Genesis. And next week we'll, we'll wrap up Genesis. And first I'd like to start off by kind of giving a summary of 37 through 45, very briefly. Um, we'll exegete all of those chapters. Uh, but just kind of walk through what's, uh, what's happening to Joseph as we set things up. So in verse 37, we see that Joseph was uh, a son, and he was favored by his father and his mother, and his brothers despised him because he was beloved and favored. And so they came up with a plan to get rid of Joseph, so they sold him into slavery to Egypt. In verse 39, we see that uh, he's been bought uh, in the slave trade by a captain in Pharaoh's army named Potiphar. And Potiphar immediately sees that God is with him and he places him in a position to be the master of Potiphar's home. Where, uh, where Joseph would stay and he would kind of rule over all the other servants of the home. Where Potiphar's wife would stay a lot of times. And so Potiphar also found favor in Joseph's eyes. But this was more of a physical lusting after him. And so Potiphar, after making several passes on, on Joseph, and Joseph continued to reject her and say, I'm not doing this, is not honoring to God. She screams, rape. So Potiphar must do something now that Joseph has been accused of this thing. So he takes him and places him in jail. But Potiphar knows that Joseph is a leader, so he places him in charge of all the other prisoners in this jail. Sometime later, there's a two more captains, a cupbearer and a and a baker that end up going to jail being sent to jail by Pharaoh. Joseph is ruling over them. They've been there for some time. And in verse 40, we see that these men are starting to have dreams that are, that are bothering them. Joseph says, hey, I can interpret your dreams. So he interprets the dreams to this cupbearer and this baker. Not good news for the baker, good news for the cupbearer. The cupbearer goes back to his position as captain as the cupbearer to Pharaoh. And he, as he's leaving, Joseph looks at him and says, hey, remember me. The cupbearer doesn't remember him until years later. Now, Pharaoh, or sometime later, we don't know exactly just the time. But sometime later, Pharaoh begins to have dreams that are bothering him. Pharaoh's demanding that someone interpret this. So in 41, we see that he's bothered by these dreams and he's demanding someone come and interpret these and no one in the land can. And so the cupbearer remembers Joseph. He says, hey, when I was in jail, there was a man that interpreted the baker's dream and my dreams. And he was accurate. So Pharaoh called for Joseph and Joseph came and he sat 
at, uh, at Pharaoh's feet, and he heard the dream, and he interprets the dream. And immediately Pharaoh places him as prime minister over all of Egypt, the right hand of Pharaoh, the second most powerful man in all of the world. The dream showed a 14-year span, seven years of abundant growth. There would be plenty of rain and vegetation, and people would eat and be fat and be happy. But then there would be seven years of devastation, drought, famine. And Joseph tells Pharaoh about the dream and says that someone needs to come up with a plan to make sure that we're storing enough food for when there's famine that we'll be able to dig this up and people will be able to, to live. Otherwise, people will die of starvation. Nine years later, now we're seven years past. The, the time of abundance and two years into the famine, and we're in chapter 42. And we read this in 30, 42, verse 2. Why do you look, this is Jacob saying, why do you look at one another? Behold, I have heard there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. But Jacob did not send Benjamin because Jacob did not trust the boys. So the ten brothers, they go off on this journey to Egypt to go and buy grain for the family. The boys have to go in front of the prime minister because he's the one that determines how much grain is given to each family. And so they show up. Joseph recognizes them as they are bowing down. He speaks harshly to them, as I read earlier. He looks at them and says, you guys are spies. You've come to look at the nakedness of this land. And they, being disgruntled by this, Joseph places them in jail. And while they're going to jail, they're starting to argue with each other. And they're starting to talk about the death of Joseph. 20 years earlier now, they're bringing it up. And they're saying, it's caught up with us, guys. It's caught up with us. What are we going to do? This evil that we did to our brother 20 years ago is now caught up with us. They didn't know that Joseph was able to interpret what they were saying. And Joseph was listening to them. So, Joseph brings them out. Fills her bags full of grain and says, you can go home and take food to your family, but one of you must stay. And if you ever come back again, you better bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, with you so that I can get a, a, an accurate account of how many are in your family. So Simeon stays behind, and the other nine brothers go back with grain, sacks full of grain, and their pouches full of money still. Verse 43, we see several years later that Jacob is in need of food again. So he says, boys, go buy more food in Egypt. It's time for us to replenish our, our stock here. The brothers kind of look at him and say, look, I got Simeon there, and, they and he told me not to come back unless we bring the youngest brother, Benjamin, which was now favored highly in the eyes of Jacob. So Jacob wasn't happy. No, you'll go without your brother. And he said, he will not give us any food, and he will keep us will be his servants and he won't get any grain. So Judah pleads that, that Jacob would send Benjamin with them. He says, look, I'll, I'll be in charge of him. He'll be my neck on the line. So Jacob agrees and he sends Benjamin with Judah and the brothers to go and be with, uh, to go and buy, buy grain in Egypt. Now remember, Judah was the one 20 years earlier that was spearheading the whole conspiracy to make sure that, don't kill him, but let's make some money off this kid. Let's sell him. He's one of the spearheading this whole thing, and now he's pleading to be the one that takes care of Benjamin. So they go, and they're in front of Egypt, and 
Joseph sees Benjamin and the brothers coming, and he calls for a feast to be prepared. And as they come closer, they bow down, and they beg for more food. And you send them in, and they have dinner, and the guys are sitting there, they're nervous. Man, we're, we've been found out. We're going to be accused for stealing the grain two years ago because they get, he gave us our money back, and we had all the money with us. And so Jacob, thinking ahead, said, look, when you go this time, take gifts to the prime minister. And take the money that he, had, that he gave us two years ago. And we'll take more money for grain. So Joseph sees them, and he's sees his brother Benjamin for the first time and is introduced to him. And he's so overwhelmed that he actually leaves the room to go and, and weep. In verse 44, we see that the steward of, the, of, of the, the, the kingdom there is commanded by Joseph, hey, fill their grains full of sack after dinner. And tomorrow morning, they'll leave and fill all the coin back into the shackles. But in the youngest brother's sack, put my cup. My silver cup. Okay? So, the next morning they have their grain, and their monies are still full of pouches, and they're leaving the area, and right before they get to the gates, the steward runs out and stops them and says, and says, why have you repaid evil for good? And the brothers are shaking their head. What, what are you talking about? So, one of you has, has stolen Fair, uh, uh, Joseph's cup, the prime minister's cup, the master's cup. We hadn't stolen your cup. We brought you gifts and we brought you money from two years ago. We brought you more money to pay for new grain. Why do we want the master's silver and gold? There's no way that any of us have the master's cup. Even so, I'll make a deal with you. If you can find the cup. And you can kill the one that has the cup, and we'll all be your servants. They're pretty sure that the cup's not in any of their bags. And so the steward starts with the oldest and goes all the way down to the youngest. And he gets to Benjamin's bag, he cuts the sack. The grain falls out. And here comes a silver cup, the master's cup. In verse 45, we see that the, the brothers have come back. They've arrested Benjamin. The boys, the brothers have ripped their clothing. They're in distress and they go back to Joseph. And they Judah pleads for his life. And in verse 45, the drama has now just uh, gotten so hot that Joseph can't, is so overwhelmed. He can't continue to keep the truth from him. So he calls everyone out. And he looks at just his brother and says, It's me, Joseph. Is my father still alive? And the brothers were in the sand to get to speak. So this is the story of Joseph and his brothers and the point of reconciliation. This is a story of 12 brothers, one that had gotten lost many years ago and now has been brought back in front of them. He's reintroduced himself. There's a new brother, Benjamin, that's now favored as well. And there's so many rich teaching points in these five or six chapters. This morning I want to kind of look at three. Three that I just feel like God has laid on my heart, and I just want to share those this morning. One is that God is using every circumstance in Joseph's life to teach Joseph that God is offering grace to him and to those that are around him. God is using every circumstance in Joseph's life to teach Joseph that God is sovereign over his whole story. 
And God is using every circumstance in Joseph's life to teach him that he is the one that preserves life. And so we're just going to walk through those, those kind of, we'll find the first one in 44-32 where we start seeing the story where the servants are found out and Judah comes before Joseph and becomes, uh, and, and, became, and said, hey, look, I've made a pledge over Benjamin's life to my father Jacob. He, he says, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. So Benjamin's been accused of stealing the cup. Why? You gotta ask that question. Joseph has stuck the cup and has, has framed them. Joseph is putting his brothers in the same predicament that he was, that they were in 20 years earlier with Joseph. And he's wanting to see how are you going to respond now. You have a new brother that's younger than all of you, that the, that the, the mom and dad are obviously favoring. The last brother that they favored, you wanted to kill. And I am him. Instead, you sold me to slavery. What would you do now? I'm giving you a chance. Here's a chance. Get rid of him. The boy's mine now. He'll be my servants. And you guys can go with your grain, with your satchels full of money, go back and be home with your family. And Jacob, I mean Judah, looks at the situation and says, No, my next one is on the line. But he begins to confess all the guilt and all the shame that he's been carrying around for 20 years. He starts to confess it. And Joseph looks at him and he sees that there's great remorse in everything that he's done in his life. Joseph sees that there's compassion for his father and for his brother. Joseph sees that the envy and the jealousy of a younger brother has now died in Judah. It's no longer there. And then something beautiful happens. Judah looks at Joseph and says, Take me, not the boy. Joseph very easily could have said, Okay, alright, I'll take, I'll take you, Judah. You did this to me. I'll take you, send me back. And your family will have to lament the death of you. But Joseph, Joseph is so overwhelmed by the compassion that he has for his father, he has for his brother, that Joseph begins to weep. See, Joseph had to know, has God changed your heart? Has God changed you? He's changed me. Joseph was looking at the scenario and he's saying, he knows that God has changed his heart, but has he changed yours? And so he does this little test. And yeah, God has done something in Judah. God has exposed such grace. And so Joseph is looking at his brother and says, you're right, you deserve death. But I'm not going to give you death. Instead, I'm going to expose to you the whole truth of this story. We see that in verse 45-3. Or and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were in dismay at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. And Joseph begins to unpack what God has been teaching him for the last 20 years. Come, come to me. And let me tell you what God has taught me on this journey. He looks at them and he sees that they're in dismay. They're in dismay because if this is really Joseph, whew, we're in trouble. 
If this is really Joseph, we deserve death right now. He's a prime minister. He can snap his fingers and we're done. They know what they deserve. But they're also probably sitting in the back of their head, man, what's dad going to do? <laughs> what's dad going to do when he finds out his son is alive? He's going to be ticked. He's going to kill him too. We're dead on all angles here. And he looks at him and says, don't be dismayed. Why does he say that? Don't be angered. Don't be distressed. Because Joseph's not. He's looking at his brothers and he's overwhelmed with compassion. God has done a work of forgiveness in him. So he calls him and says, come, come to me and let me extend truth. Let me extend trust to you. He looks at him and says, you sold me into slavery. So God sent me to save you. Joseph's now lathered in humility. When he was a boy, he wasn't so much. He had a bunch of pride. Now his brothers are bowing down at his feet. And in humility, he's saying, let me teach you something about God. Let me teach you what he's been teaching me about this grace. Because on Joseph's journey, man, he could have died several times. Thrown into a pit. Sold into slavery. Thrown into jail. Now he's the right hand of Pharaoh. He recognizes that his life has been full of grace. He even sees it in Judah. Judah, you can turn and leave your brother, but, but you're saying no, not to the boy, but me. There's grace just woven in and out of this story. But then there's also the fact that, that God is using every circumstance in this life to teach Joseph and to teach us today that he is sovereign. He's teaching, Joseph is teaching us today that he is he's offering grace. And so the second point is that he's using every circumstance in our lives to show us and to teach us that he's full of grace and that he's sovereign over everything. So in verse 5 it says, And now do not be distressed or angered with yourself because you sold me here. God sent me here. Joseph's paradigm, he looks at the broken world that he's been placed in all these difficult scenarios and he realizes that God is doing something. Every single time, God shows favor in the eyes of someone else that's, that's directing Joseph's steps. That God is with him. God is protecting him the entire time. God did not allow these awful things to happen, but God is allowing them to be used only to draw God, to draw, to draw Joseph closer to him. And to bear more of God's image. And so we can take a pause from the story and think about our own lives. We all have hard things going on in our life right now. We're all wrestling through difficult moments. We are all in this distress, some anger, some full of fear, anxiety, worry, concern. We're all there. And so we're going to look at Paul's teaching for just a moment. Look at Romans 8.28. Right? It says that, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. One little caveat, I think we overuse and carelessly use this verse in the church. It's a truth. It's an important truth. But when someone is broken, they don't need 
Chippy Chad is coming over and be like, hey, no things are going to work out again, so we're done. <laughs> because it's a hard truth, and it's a real truth. But we've got to be careful on how and when to expound to our brothers and sisters that are struggling. So that's a little, just a little step aside. But I do want to look at this great truth, this massive, massive piece. All things. What does that mean? Good things? Just good things? The same things? Just the, the things that make the most sense and the puzzle pieces fit together? And we can understand, we can comprehend what God's doing? Is that what all things are? This is a massive truth. I'm going to read this to you. God is so supremely in charge of the world that all the things that happen to believers are ordered in such a way that they serve our good. I mean, tribulations, death, peril, famine. The things that you're thinking about in your head right now. All things. Piper writes this quote, the things in your, in your bulletin. Says, so the rugged hope of the believer is not that we will escape distress or peril or hunger or slaughter, but that Almighty God will make every one of our agonies and instruments of His mercy to do us good. You meant it for evil, Joseph said to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, but God meant it for good. And so it is with every calamity of those who love God. God meant it for good. So what is all things? It's not just a lot of things. It's not just some things. This is a massive promise that God is giving us that all things are all things. If we live inside and walk through the door of this massive promise, then the freedom that we experience in Christ the stability, the depth, the power of the Holy Spirit, when we see life through this lens, is unshakable. But if we live outside of this truth, then we'll find ourselves bound up with confusion, anxiety, concern, living in straw-built homes with no foundation. This massive truth that God extends to us through Paul's teaching, is coming to life in Joseph's story. He's looking at what he's gone through, his life, and he's saying that God's in charge of all this. This text, this Romans 8, 28, 8, is actually an end times talking. It's looking at, man, when Christ comes and rescues all of us, that it is good that all the things that have happened in all of history will show you point glory to God. That's a big picture, isn't it? But it's very practical, very applicable to us today to think about the scenarios that we're in and to put into practice the faith that God has called us to have in Him. God, all things, all of history, present counts. Where you are right now, you're doing something. It doesn't mean we have to skip and ignore pain and lamenting. But it means that we're having a picture of lens that says, God's doing something here. God, where are you in this? I don't know if Joseph knew when he was in jail or he was being sold into slavery, he was being charged with rape. If God, I don't know how his posture, but, but it says over and over that God was with him. And his posture kept bringing it back to this moment in time where his brothers show up and he says, let us worship God. 
Because God has done all these things. What is good? Jesus. Jesus is the good. He's the only good. God is working all things out for us to be with and worship Jesus. We do that now, and then we'll do that for eternity. What if Joseph would have responded based off his experience? What if we looked at our situations and we responded the way the world has taught us to respond, right? It would be a bunch of lying, deceiving, manipulating, cheating, self-righteous people. And if I'm honest with myself, which I try to be, I struggle with that every day. I fight that every single day. But I'm fighting that with Christ, not on my own accord. And so we look at this and we recognize that God is doing something and He is sovereign over this entire story. And then it brings us to the point where it says in verse 4 that God is using every circumstance in Joseph's life and in our life as the ones that are disciples of Jesus Christ to go out and preserve life. Verse 4 says, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. In verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So he's showing that he identifies grace, he identifies who he is, he identifies who they are. He identifies their heart being distressed and angered. He identifies this journey that God has had them on for the last 20 years. He identifies the purpose of all of this was to preserve life. And he extends and exposes forgiveness to his brothers. Don't be angry. Don't be distressed. I'm not. I'm the one that has the right to be here, guys. And I'm not. I'm not angry. I'm not distressed. I want to make this a moment of worship, an act of worship. And so he teaches them that God has sent me to preserve life. And he promises God is going to provide for us. He's provided for us the entire time. He provided this dream in Pharaoh. He provided the ability to interpret this dream. He provided a plan for 14 years. He provided a plan to, to store for seven and to divide for seven. And we're sitting in the middle of it. It's not about you, brothers. It's not about me as Joseph. It's about God and what he is doing. He has done all of this. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. And he falls down in verse 14, and he begins to weep on his brother's neck. Welcome to this dysfunctional family. (laughs) Welcome, I'm your brother, the prime minister. I don't think uh, Benjamin saw that one coming. And then he goes to each one of his brothers and he weeps on their necks. And they begin and they stay and they sit around and they talk for a while. So we see that God is the one that's going to preserve. And as he sends them, he says, go and tell dad that I'm alive. But he leads them with these words. And don't quarrel on the way. All right? The boys are going to leave and be like, Dude, why'd you do that, Judah? Good job, good idea. I mean, they're going to be quarreling. He said, don't. 
Let us worship Now go and tell Dad that his son's alive. And so they go, and Jacob hears the voice of his sons from afar saying, Your son Joseph, he's alive. And Jacob's heart becomes numb. What are these guys? What are they doing? Will they ever quit? Why are they bringing up my son's name after 20 years? What are they doing? And his heart is numb. And as they get closer, they see that Simeon is with them. And he sees that Benjamin is unscathed. And he sees these donkeys, and these cattle, and these wagons, and this grain, and these new clothes. Is it true? Is my son alive? Is Joseph alive? Is the son that was once dead? As he comes to life now. And his heart is revived. And he jumps up and he, he embraces his boys. And he's excited that his son is alive and he's excited that his family is together. And he says, Let us go and be with Joseph. Do you see what this story is about? That God chose one man and placed the sovereignty and the grace and the preservation of life in his heart for not just himself or for his family, but for many. He's drawing this beautiful picture that 1900 years, 38 generations later, that he's going to send one man to come and preserve the life, not just of a family, of all, all of us. This was his plan the whole time. Jesus was the plan the whole time. That he would send his one and only son to come and die on the cross for all. And that everyone that would believe would look at their life and be like, all things, all these things I've gone through in my life, in this moment, so that I can worship Jesus, where I am, in the thick of it, right here, right now, help me worship Jesus. Because one day when Jesus is going to show up, it's going to be a very similar conversation as Joseph had with his brothers. Don't be distressed. Come to me. Joseph is going, Jesus is going to show up, and he's going to look out at the crowds, and he's going to say, those with heavy hearts, Heavy lady, come to me. I'm going to preserve your life if you believe that I am the Son of God. That's what this story is showing us and preparing our hearts today for us to bow our own knees and lay in front of Jesus and worship Him because He has preserved our life through pouring out His blood. That's why we celebrate communion. So let's prepare our hearts today. Pray for it.